Good evening. So happy to be here with all of you as I was sitting. The, the, the beauty of the chants was just coursing through my being and I'm really uh, appreciating being in this field of Dhamma and this um, shared you know, opening to reverence, the reverence that can make us come alive. And I'm aware that it's really, you know, after Kitty Sorrow's gorgeous talk last night, it's kind of a hard act to follow. <laughs> um, but I wanted to begin by sharing with you a few words from the Atadanda Sutta, which is a sutta that means picking up a stick. And these ancient words are uh, speaking to me to me lately. This is from the Sutta Nipata, the chapter of the eights. And you know, it's so easy sometimes to think that the Dhamma lives in these pages, or as if the Dhamma lives in these beautiful rupas behind me. And just a reminder that really the Dhamma lives in you. As Kitty Sorrow was speaking about last night, just this, this Dhamma is, is timeless here and now, not outside of your own hearts. And I think about the people who were living at the time of the Buddha, the time of this great um, awakening of consciousness on the planet, and you know they were going about their lives, dealing with the challenges of their time. And while the stories may have been different, they too were going against the current, and they too were looking for a way to understand suffering and the roots of suffering and something beyond. So this is from the Atadanda um, Sutta. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. In seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn. It was hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. But once it has been pulled out, all that running is finished. And so is the exhaustion that comes with it. Can you relate? It's good, huh? <laughs> the feeling of, of fear that can arise as we, you know, let in the reality of some of what's happening in our troubled and beautiful world. The call to remove the thorn from our hearts. 
So all that running is finished and so is the exhaustion that comes with it. With it. And he's speaking to different levels, right? He's really speaking to the, the kind of um, rest that is the mind's deepest nature when the mind isn't running out but the rest that's here when the mind's resting in its own nature and the process of taking out the thorn is one of really um, exploring the places where our misunderstanding makes the knots that are already there even tighter you know that feeling it can be kind of a feeling of hovering above that rest that we sense, but kind of hover, hovering above. And so it's this movement as, as the thorn comes out of our heart, as the knots begin to loosen, the sacred is more available to us. We were, we're dwelling more fully. We're, we're available in a deeper way. And... You know, it's natural. It's natural these days to feel some sense of anxiety or restlessness when we take in, you know, the the reality that this planet is, you know, like incinerating. You know, we're we're right on our way to not being a habitable place for human beings and other animals. It's already happening, as you know. You know, when we take in the persistence of white supremacist violence, including, you know, in the last week, this is this, the need to do retreat, <laughs> the need to practice just is so central for me. Lately, I feel so grateful for my Dharma practice. You know, I, I can't imagine navigating my way through these times without the incredible mercy and deep, deep understanding of these teachings, of this practice. You know, the the Buddha is saying that peace is possible, even with all of this. Peace is possible for us. Because the truth is, we don't have, you know, it's like impossible to find some, we don't have conditions that we can find where somehow we're totally separate from what's going on because of the truth of our interconnectedness. It just doesn't exist. And as we become more and more um, connected, you know, just the sheer volume of how much information we take in every day now. It's so easy to become um, more connected with the world around us and become increasingly disconnected with our inner experience, with our inner depths, our inner resources. It was good to talk with some of you today in the practice discussions. It always helps to have a sense of, I was saying, you know, look out, there's all these still bodies and beautiful and radiant faces, but oh my, there's a lot going on in the inside, right? It's such a journey. And I really want to, I want to appreciate your good work, really appreciate your efforts. It's inspiring to me. You know, we wouldn't all be here without your dedication to the practice, your sincerity. And it takes, it just takes so much compassion to sit with ourselves. It takes so much um, patience because no matter how many retreats you sat, 
You, know, you, you never know exactly what's going to come up, right? The myth that awakening on this path is this gentle, gradual slope toward just you know, more and more peaceful and calm and easy sits, that you become like, uh, well, I won't even say about what's on the cover of Time magazine, this picture, you know, like this a white woman wearing yoga clothes, looking so peaceful with headphones in her ears, you know. That's not what the path of liberation looks like for most of us, is it? No, in fact, oftentimes, um, you know, there can be, almost be a feeling of going backwards, it's like, wait, I've been practicing all this time. What's going on? I'm really struggling. You know, what's happening for you? It's not a mistake. <laughs> this is your retreat. And in my experience, the more available I become for truth, the more illuminated everything becomes that stands in the way between my heart and the deeper truth. So it's like if you're working with stuff, you're on the right track. <laughs> it's, um, it's more like sometimes things can get easy and then sometimes things can get really, really hard and they may or may not get easy for a while. <laughs> but there's just um, there's a certain vulnerability in coming on retreat and not knowing what's, what's going to happen. And the point here isn't to have some particular experience. The point here isn't to um, acquire or attain a particular um, state as much as it is to cultivate a way of being with your experience, a way of being with your heart and your mind that allows you to live with more um, spaciousness and more confidence that you can meet the moment in a real way. I think that's the beauty. I, you know, in my own practice, there's actually a lot less fear over time because I trust that there's a knowing of how to meet the moment. You know, it's like I trust that, that there's, a, um, there's a capacity from the cultivation to meet what comes my way. And we're in this environment, this very simplified environment. You know, your schedule's all set for you and everything. And Yang was pointing this morning in his, in his beautiful meditation instructions to this just importance of simplicity. But we're not used to being simple, are we? We're used to really thinking about things. You know, we're used to chewing on stuff, thinking about things. And so, of course, when we come on retreat and we're removing the thorn from our hearts, of course, we meet this, all the constellation of, of thoughts and belief and sensations that uh, may keep in place a familiar sense of identity that, that um, were laid down early, early on. Our, our friend Sebene talks about being like in a station, station wagon. I picture one of those big station wagons from the 70s with wood siding. And if you just imagine there being loads of luggage and boxes in the back and the station's wagon's rolling along at 70 miles an hour and all of a sudden you put the brakes on, boom. You know, all, all of that luggage, baggage, <laughs> comes crashing into the front. And it, it coming on retreat can feel like that. You know, it's just a sense of so much that maybe hasn't been processed at the time that it occurred just because of the volume. I feel like that sometimes so much happens. I'm not able to metabolize it all the way 
in the moment that it's happening. And then I come on retreat and there's a sense of, oh, finally there's the space. You know, finally there's a space for these pieces to work themselves through our hearts. And as I'm speaking a bit about the, the sticky places, the places where we get tangled, I want to uh, be clear, it's really important, it's really helpful not to get too identified with your, your muck. I, uh, you know, there's these kind of three personality types in, in Buddhism, you know, greed type, aversive type, and a deluded type, and I'm, I'm definitely an aversive type. And I remember one time reading this it's part of a book about aversive personalities. I'm like, oh, that's totally me. Oh, I can't believe I do that. You know, so aversive. And then I, I saw it. I was getting really identified with somehow this, this kind of like defining me. And I just sat down and looked at my mind. You know, and in the moments of, of, the, of the mind stream, yes, there were moments of aversion, but there were so many more moments of kindness, of generosity, you know, of patience. Of, of really parami, of the wholesome. So it's important not to kind of narrow your story of yourself into, into the thorn. And maybe you're having moments here where there's, where you're just, um, you're not caught. Maybe you're having moments when that kind of enchantment with the buzz and the whir settles back. You know, you may be having moments where you're just sinking into a moment of seeing the beauty around you or a moment of just experiencing a breath or just eating a bite. I was, I was coming up, I was in my room last night before the 7, 7 p.m. sitting, and I just kept having this feeling to go up to the hall, and it was, it was a little early, it was maybe 6.35 or so, and it was a little strange, but I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll follow this, and I'll go up to the hall, and I got in the cart, and as I was driving toward the gate for the retreat center, there was this creature in my vision. It took me a minute to figure it out, but it was like a, it was a bird with, with talons, definitely with these talons, and it was really light-colored with big wings, and it wasn't a bird that I had been used to seeing at Spirit Rock. And I've spent a fair bit of time here, so it's like a, the perception. I just wasn't sure what I was seeing. And then the bird went and perched on the, the gate, the, the edge of the gate, and I stopped the cart, and I got out, and it was an owl. It was this magnificent, a couple of you were there with me. It was this magnificent owl. You know, I, I was thinking, oh, the owl's looking at me. I don't know that the owl was looking at me. The owl's face was just pointed in my direction. And I saw the eyes of this wild, luminous creature, just incredible. I just stood there, and so did a couple of you. And the owl just hung out for a while. It was, it was just fascinating how, you know, just this, this interconnectedness, who knows what leads to what, but just that, that feeling of leaving my room early and stopping and seeing this owl. And, and anything else I was worried about in those moments was completely gone. It was just this moment of natural wonder. 
natural intimacy, natural connectedness, and how it is to be available for that. Because in time, all the the busyness, it it becomes um, less of the preference, less of the habit. I felt so gifted by the presence of this owl. And after I'd been with this creature for a while, I got back in the cart and the owl flew away and I was told that the owl came back. We have an owl, we have an owl friend here on the land. Just permeated, permeated with the presence of the sacred and that was it, just boom, that was all. So it's, it's, um, it's more of an alchemical process waking up than a, than, a, than a linear one. I was thinking back to my very first meditation retreat and I remember there was a flyer for it and I said, bring a pillow to sit on. And so I brought a pillow from my bed to sit on for the whole retreat. And I was in um, I was in so much physical pain. I didn't hear somehow. It didn't get through to me that it was really it would have been okay to sit in a chair. So I sat on this pillow the whole time. It felt like a knife was stabbing into my shoulder, and I was I was so determined. I was sitting there with tears coming down my face. I was um, you know, I just didn't think it, didn't think it would be okay to move. It was crazy, but it was a retreat filled with dukkha. And um, I remember going into the teachers and saying, you know. I came here to be free from suffering, but all I'm doing is suffering. Why on earth should I stay here? And she looked at me, and I was intense. I was young and intense. And she looked at me, and she said, and I said, you know, there's so much suffering. Why should I stay here? She said, because it runs your life. She pointed her finger at me. She was right. Yeah, she was right. And... I got home and I, I, I promised myself I would, never, I would never do something like that again. I would never do that to myself again. And um, I remember calling my mother and she said, yep, Erin, you, you never have to do that again. You, you, you figured that one out. And, and a bit of time went by and I was in the bathtub and the thought came to my mind, you know, huh, Maybe, maybe I should go do another retreat, and it kind of surprised me. But what had happened in me was that um, something deep inside my heart had been touched. Something that, that I just resonated with that was so much deeper than words, but that I knew in my bones. And obviously I've done a lot of retreats since then, but I couldn't see it at the time. When I was on the retreat, I couldn't see that something was happening because all I could see was the dukkha. But there was a kind of faith and confidence and conviction that, that came forth, that carried me. So often when you're in, in, in a retreat, it's, it's actually hard to have a perspective on what's happening because you're just, you're just in it. So, so don't um, believe your stories so much about whether this is like a fruitful retreat or not because you don't know because you're in it. It's just your job to do the practice. It's just your job to, to, to really the path activity and to trust what happens from there.
lot of times there's this feeling when, when things are rough of like, um, yeah, I just want to be able to let go. Why can't I just let go? Why can't I just let go? And I, I appreciate this, these words from a, from a woman named Devi and just for, for people who are feeling like they're having trouble letting go, which can be skillful but can also be a big bypass. She says that's normal. Everyone wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things, don't touch things, in full consciousness, full awareness, with a totally open heart? The first experience is of touch, a profound contact between things, with the universe without mental commotion. Everything begins there, touching, opening, accepting the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. So it's this invitation to come into a deeper intimacy with our experience, to really touch deeply. I, um, I like the, the um, you know, Kitty Saro was talking about the hands and the hands in prayer position. And, you know, I think of it being like the, the palms are kind of like the awareness. You know, the palms, they just receive. They just receive. It's as simple as really putting your hands together and feeling the sensations of the palms. The awareness is right there, just receiving. And then the fingers, you know how your fingers can feel edges and, fe- and pick things up and move and um, kind of partake in textures and, and flavors. That's kind of like how the mindfulness is. The mindfulness really comes to know all the particulars of what's happening in the body and the mind and how the teachings are showing themselves through your experience. So this whole practice is an invitation to touch deeply. And, you know, two words have been helpful for me at different times in my practice. Those two words are this too. A sense of, oh, I'm so sleepy. Why am I so sleepy? Oh, this too. Sleepiness is part of the human experience. Or, you know, this, this story that isn't easily letting go. It keeps coming up, keeps coming up, keeps coming up. This too. Because so much of the time, we're meditating with a corrective mindset. You know, that feeling like that somehow what you're doing you need is, is a correcting of your experience. But this, this path isn't about correcting. Correcting is samsara. So speaking a little bit about obstacles, but you know there really are no obstacles, right? Yeah, the obstacles are the fodder through which we really wake up. And I want to, the Buddha was beautiful teaching to internal, external and both internal and external. And we know these kinds of internal obstacles, like um, sometimes there's physical limitations that feel like obstacles. Some of you are working with this this kind of self-judgment, self-criticism that can feel brutal. It's basically, I think, like a pandemic in so much of this country. Addiction, 
anxiety, sorrow, internalized depression, fear of vulnerability. There's all these things that can feel like internal obstacles. And then there's very real external obstacles, right? Those relationships that are so difficult (laughs) that keep coming to mind. There's how it is to be living within systems that are grounded in oppression and power, grounded in racism and homophobia and patriarchy. Goes on and on and on, internal and external obstacles. And the power is really in, um, it's so important to understand that, that the power isn't in breaking down the obstacle. The power isn't in completely abolishing the obstacle. The power is in your relationship to it. The power is in how are you dancing with these these arisings that that might challenge you. How are you developing a a deeper way of being? Because that's what we're doing here. You know, we're, we're, we're developing a capacity to be with our experience. This is the power, the real power of mindful awareness is this capacity to be with anything, to be with anything in a way that we can, we can awaken through it. And this time, the time we're in, it really calls for a dharma that is deep and wide enough to hold. You know, it calls for a cultivation of something inside, a reservoir of something inside that isn't distraught. We need access to a reservoir of something inside that's not distraught in order to stay the course, in order, in order to be available for the long haul. These are some words from um, Winona LaDuke. I have such great respect for her, and I first heard her speak when I was a teenager in North Dakota. She's talking about power and her way of framing power has to do with what we're doing here, has to do with the sacred. She says one of our people in the native community said the difference between white people and Indians is that Indian people know they're oppressed but don't feel powerless. White people don't feel oppressed but feel powerless. Deconstruct that disempowerment. Part of the mythology they've been teaching you is that you have no power. Power is not brute force and money. Power is in your spirit. Power is in your soul. It is what your ancestors, your old people gave you. Power is in the earth. It's in your relationship to the earth. So that's some of the reclamation that's happening here is to, to not take ourselves to be these, these passing stories, these passing identities, but to really open to this sacred dimension that Kitty Sorrow pointed to last night. And I want to say on one level, it's very personal, right? You know, we each have our personal ways that, that, um, that are unique and real where we get hung up. You know, my thorn might be a different shape and texture than your thorn. You know, our thorns are personal to what's unfolded during each of our lives. But the nature 
of the suffering is not personal. The nature of it is the same. You know, for each of us, like, the, the, the dukkha unfolds in the present moment. For each of us, um, it changes. It doesn't stay the same. Even though it can appear to stay the same, it's actually arising and passing. And for each of us, the more that you like pick up and, and decide to contort yourself into these stories of who you think you are, the more, the more that you suffer. So this is this power of yoni somanisakara, wise attention. It's, it's incredible that we as human beings have the capacity to direct our attention. It's really remarkable. It's placing your wise attention, yoniso, the root is womb. Placing the wise attention in the womb of awareness. Can you feel that? So it's not just like pounce on the breath. That's not what we're doing. Wise attention in the womb of awareness. And I think it goes without saying that as we, you know, um, practice, as we allow the Dhamma to enter our hearts more and more, it's like, uh, um, it makes a huge difference to the collective, doesn't it? Huge difference for the collective. Because it's, it, um, the collective informs the personal, the personal informs the collective. Have some of you heard of the myth of Sisyphus? <laughs> the myth of Sisyphus that Camus wrote about. And it's, it's this myth where this, this guy, Sisyphus, is um, he's basically condemned for his whole life to push a huge boulder to the top of a mountain. And the moment he, you know, he pushes this boulder to the top of the mountain, it rolls back down again. And so he has to go get the boulder and do it all over again, over and over and over again. And you might have places in your life where that feels familiar. It's kind of an archetypal, archetypal image, this myth of Sisyphus. And um, Stephen Mitchell has this great way of writing about it. He says, we think of Sisyphus as this, this tragic hero has to this keep you know, bringing this boulder to the top of the hill. He seems like he's kind of you know, forever condemned. But, but the truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. <laughs> he cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, he sings to it. It's become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he could step aside and let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. He's in love with the rock. He knows who he is with that rock. <laughs> you know, where are you loyal to your dukkha? Where have you pledged allegiance to your rock? Because You know, not picking it up and going home is not familiar. You know, the, the rock, these, these, these 
places where we struggle, at least our heart knows how to shape around a thorn. You know, it's familiar. And so a lot of what comes up as the days go on are are these kind of defensive patterns just to keep things familiar because, you know, the way that insight works is that it's totally spontaneous. You know, you can't think your way into an insight because that thinking is happening from the level of where you are already. You know, insight happens spontaneously. It's a natural um, unfolding as we as we move forward in the practice, and so there's such a, a um, this willingness to experience something new. You know, to go where we haven't gone before, like judging mind. You know, if I asked everyone in the room who's working with judging mind to raise your hand, you'd probably all raise your hand. It's like basically the last thing to go before a person's heart is fully freed. It's so pervasive, so insidious. And in judging mind, if you think about it, whether it's the story of not being good enough or whatever it is, fill in the blank, um, part of the function is just to let in no new information. It doesn't matter what's actually happening. That story of yourself will keep running through, keep running through, keep running through. And insight is like opening up to let in new information. So it just takes a great deal of trust, a great deal of trust in what we're doing. We're working with, you know, how do we become unhindered? How do we become unhindered? Which is like, how do we... um, The word hindrance really means covering, nivarana, covering over. That which occludes our consciousness, that which makes makes the awareness more, more opaque, that which covers over the luminous heart. We're just uncovering, we're not attaining, we're uncovering and putting down. I was on a long retreat last year, and um, it, was, it was a beautiful retreat for me. And part of what was happening for me was I was having all these images come in during the meditations. There's these images that would flash in, and they were things I, I really hadn't thought about for 30 years, probably. You know, I didn't even know that it was still kind of inside of me, but these images of... of um, green 70s carpet of the house I grew up in and images of the mailbox and these these smells like really early life um, images and memories and it wasn't such a problem you know the, the awareness could hold it and I remember one one sitting in particular it was it was midway through the retreat and things felt pretty stable for me and I sat down and things just felt really off all of a sudden I felt kind of uh crooked and not settled. I felt kind of irritated and um, I thought to check the attitude of the mind. I thought to just check, you know, what's, what's going on here? What, what, in what, what kind of, how am I being with this experience? And I could feel that the attitude of my mind was one of real reluctance and hesitation and the words not sure came. There's this sense of sitting there feeling not sure and um, and I could really, I really feel it in my body, and I could feel just this, like, familiar process of becoming around 
around this feeling of being being not sure. And I was hanging out with it, and this image came of um, my mother. This was after she had died, and her her body was being removed from the home that she had died in. It was a powerful image, and there was just this this seeing that this feeling of not sure, you know, was was like the very womb I had been born into in this life. It was just such an appreciation for. Um, the fact that it like didn't start with me. I was born into it and and there was this this kind of quiet uh, release into the places where I'd been really identified with that, thinking that somehow if I um, if I relaxed around the not sureness, like I would lose my mother, you know, those places. And it was this profound, like, you know, release of the identification with with some of the pieces of what it meant to be her daughter. On the relative level, yes, definitely still her daughter. But on a, in a, on a bigger level, you know, we're all children of the Buddha. We're, 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 we're children of Mother Earth. And it was really just interesting how some part of me really only knew how to exist through that particular struggle. Through that particular struggle. And, and the whole um, process of really unbraiding, unweaving for me was something that I didn't do. I never could have done it. You know, it was this sense of, um, as we make ourselves available, the Dhamma rewires the Dhamma we rewires in a way that's not from thinking about, but that's much more immediate and mysterious and just brilliant, really. This kind of, kind of reprogramming. Some of you might know Brian Swimmy's work. I think he's great. He's this brilliant, like, physicist. I think he is, and. He says, what's the most mysterious thing in the universe? He says, the answer among scientists might surprise you. It's not the black hole. It's not the exploding galaxy. It's not the relativistic effect where time slows down. What's most mysterious are the moments of transition when something utterly new flashes forth into existence such as the moment when life emerges or the moment when a cell learns to consume the light from the sun. Amazingly, we're in the very middle of one of these cosmic transitions. It's the moment when disparate groups of humans, whether they're French humans or Indian humans or African humans or democratic humans or religious humans or skeptical humans, the moment when the fragmented groups of the human species may discover their profound unity. But I like what he's pointing to here. You know, the mystery. The mystery of what happens when something new happens. And we are um, creating the conditions for, or we're basically creating the conditions for insight to arise, but you don't do it. The Dhamma does it.
So we have to have faith. We have to have faith in the awareness. Faith in the beings who practice, who inspire you. If you're, if you're low on the faith on this retreat, you can borrow mine. I have deep faith in the Dhamma, deep faith in your practices. And you know, it's helpful sometimes. There's a way that we can really hold our patterning as being, you know, me and mine. And just remembering that whatever's happening for you, whatever the flavor of the sankara, you know, passing through, just that um, it's really borrowed. It's borrowed from the collective of humanity. It's borrowed from all the generations before you, both the, both the struggles and the strengths. There can be a, a sense of, um, I know I have all these quotes, I'm going to share another quote, but sometimes people put things into words so beautifully. Carl Jung. Yeah, I feel very strongly that I'm under the influence of things or questions that were left incomplete and unanswered by my parents or grandparents and more distant ancestors. It often seems as if there were an impersonal karma within a family, which is passed on from parents to children. It's always seemed to me that I had to complete or perhaps continue that which previous ages had left unfinished. Do you ever have that feeling? Yeah, it's big work that we're doing here. So it's helpful to really practice widening the awareness. You know, if you're in, in some cycle of, of grasping or rejecting or being really restless or doubting yourself, to just really let the awareness become way bigger than your body, way bigger than this building, and become really vast like the sky. And to just be softening, softening your belly, softening your heart. Anytime you feel like you're getting stuck, you can just practice this gentle widening and softening. When the process happens, you know, the process happens where, where um, we get interested. We, um, you might like see some patterns that you don't really want to get rid of, but you're becoming more and more aware. And just this presence begins to really dissolve, really dissolve the messages that the culture tells us about ourselves that aren't true. And it's, it's, um, it doesn't happen through aversion. It doesn't happen through just saying, I'm going to release this. It happens through engagement. It happens from touching, from holding, from feeling, from bringing great kindness, great curiosity. Just like the world changes because of our engagement. James Baldwin's wise words, when you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. So this is part of how we 
re-sacralize, how we become sacred again. How we create space for something more than the small stories or the moods or the challenges, really how we, how we pull the thorn out. It's presence and compassion, trusting the awareness, being willing to um, not know, being willing to, to be available in this way. And the real, the real danger is in, is in a deadening of the heart. You know, the real danger is in losing our capacity for feeling, losing our capacity for sensitivity. The Buddha said, I teach the Dhamma to one who feels. I do not teach the Dhamma to one who does not feel. I teach the Dhamma to one who feels. So we, we re-sacralize re- ourselves as we as we open, as we touch. Because it takes so much energy to deaden, it takes so much energy to stay separate. I'll just um, close with a poem by Pesha Gertler called The The Healing Time. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them the old wounds, the old misdirections. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart. And I say, holy, holy. We'll sit for a few moments together. Thank you for your attention. This is a walking period, and then there will be a last evening sitting at nine for those of you who have the energy. <laughs>